Thank you, thank you. I'm Father Mitch Paquin. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. We all know that one of the main things that Satan and the world like to do is sow doubt in our minds about our faith in God. The evil one caused Adam and Eve to doubt God's word in the Garden of Eden. And he continues to sow doubt about the truth of sacred scripture to this day. And of course, there are many people in culture and the world who do the same. And questions like, were Jesus' teachings accurately recorded? Were they verified? Were they passed on for almost 2,000 years without any fabrications? Did Jesus' miracles really happen? And how do we know the authentic interpretation of his words and deeds? Our guest tonight will approach answering those questions and more. He's a Catholic apologist and a speaker and the author of a new book called The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. Please welcome Mr. Gary Machuda. Gary, welcome. Hi. Good to have you. It's great to be here. It's a nice book that you've written here, and uh, it's an important question. People ask a lot of these issues. Well, well how, do, how do we know this really happened? Yeah. And, you know, there, there's no verifying facts outside the Bible for the things that happened, and... and um, how do we know who's translating it? And, and it's a translation of a translation of a translation. And, and how can I trust this? I, uh, many times I suspect these are dodges to making a decision to have an act of faith. But not always. These are, for many people, very important questions. Uh, and sometimes they don't know how to approach it. Tell us what you're doing with this book. Yeah, well, my book was written really for, I think, the average person out there. Many people, they may have heard the name Jesus, but they really don't know much about him. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and starting, so in a way, apologetics has shifted from where you can presume a lot to you almost have to presume nothing. Uh, people truly, you know, when asked on the street by interviewers, uh, they don't know what we're celebrating at Easter and sometimes even at Christmas. They don't know that Easter is about the resurrection. Some think it's Jesus' birth. They, they just don't know. Right. So I, the, the ignorance of Scripture is truly very, very basic. Yeah. So what I want to do in the book is I want to instill a sense of wonder because there's something very peculiar about this Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. So I start from zero and, and point out that, uh, that he's an unusual figure that deserves our attention. Mm -hmm. And then the next question is, well, do we have any reliable information about this Jesus? And of course, that's where the Gospels come in, mm -hmm. the, the accounts of Jesus' words and deeds here on earth. And uh, so what I do is then I, I take a look at the Gospels and I show that 
you know, there's something strange about the Gospels. They, they seem to uh, do things that you would not expect them to do. And so that's where I start. And not only do I look at uh, evidence for why this appears to be genuine uh, transmission of information about Jesus' words and deeds, but I even go further to talk about the message. How do we know the proper interpretation of his words and deeds? Because I know a lot right. of atheists, uh, you know, they might buy into, okay, the Gospels are, are testimonies, but how do you know you're interpreting right? And also uh, the canon, which books belong in the Bible, all sorts Big of issue. things. Big issue. Yeah. So one of the things um, that I, I liked about the, your start is you take a look at the Gospels as pieces of literature right. in their ancient context. And you look at two kinds of context. One is the general Greek and Roman writing of history mm -hmm. and how it compares to that, as well as to the teaching of the rabbis. What did you discover in terms of the way the Greeks and Romans wrote history in the Gospels? Yeah, and you know, it, it seems like when somebody gets a news story out first, that's what everybody knows. And then when the tr retraction comes, that's buried on the last page and people yeah. ignore it, right? Well, when it came to the Gospels, when higher criticism uh, first came out, they labeled the Gospels as ancient folklore, myth. Yes. And that kind of stuck in people's minds that this is just like all the other pagan myths and things like that. In, in fact, I, I always would be amazed at modern scholars who say, well, this is the Jesus myth. Yeah. The six times the New Testament states explicitly, these are not myths. Right. They say that explicitly. Yeah, explicitly, yeah. They knew what a myth was. I said, this isn't it. We're eyewitnesses. Right. So go on. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, things have changed. Modern biblical scholarship, and this seems to be across the board now, sees the Gospels not as folklore or myth, but as ancient biography or contemporary history. And, um, and how do you distinguish? Yeah, um, well, uh, biography would be more specific about uh, an individual. So mm -hmm. it, it follows all the, uh, the ways uh, typical biographies were written and so on. But for me, contemporary history is the, the key because there's two types of history. Uh, contemporary history has uh, either you were there and witnessed what happened and you're writing a history or you interviewed people who did uh, see it. And this is the best kind of ancient historiography. The other kind is more remote. It could have, something could have happened hundreds of years ago. And so you don't have that direct contact with the sources. A good contrast in that from the ancient world would be Livy who wrote this long history of Rome, but it had happened hundreds of years. He, he lived at just before the time of Christ, but he's writing about 750, uh, you know, when Rome is founded in its early history. And his records were mostly gone. They were destroyed centuries earlier. So that's remote history, whereas Polybius, 
was an eyewitness to the destruction of Carthage. He was there with the Roman generals right. and a non-Roman, a Greek. So you take a look at what he says with a different way than you look at Polybi uh, Livy. Yeah, one of my favorite writings is from a Jewish historian, Josephus, yes. writing around 100 AD. And he has a work called Against Appian. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning in book one, he, he basically uh, critiques Greek history. And, uh, and he notes that uh, they didn't have primary sources uh, for a number of reasons. And so what they try to do, the historians try to outdo each other in rhetoric. But for, for him, as a Jewish historian, he pointed out that the Judeans, like some other cultures, like the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, and so on, they had this long track record of record keeping, uh, of mm -hmm. constant recording of, of history and contemporary events. And he puts that at the top level of uh, historiography. And I think that's kind of the missing component is uh, when people label this as folklore or myth, I think they're missing the Jewish context in which the Gospels came out of. Yeah, that he, and you, you read, uh, I, I urge people, you can get free copies of Josephus, the Antiquities and the Jewish Wars. Mm -hmm. Download them from the internet, they're free. Yeah. And you can read it or buy the book, it's not expensive. Yeah. Um, and, and you see, how he looks up ancient sources. Yeah. Uh, so that, uh, this is part of the way history was written by Semitic people. Yeah, and he was a participant in the first revolt too. So Yes, he's he an was, eyewitness yeah. to a good part. On both sides. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. He switched sides from the loser to the winner. <laughs> yeah. So that's one element that this, the Gospels, are not written like myth. If you want to read myth, read Hesiod, yeah. and you'll see how myths were written. Right. But when you take a look at someone like Polybius, and you see how history, or Josephus, and you see how history is written, then you see, ah, this is more the style of the Gospels. Yeah. You also make a big deal about the importance of this being Palestinian, first century Palestinian Judaism, in the context of the rabbi's writing. Yes. What's, what's going on with that? Yeah, and well, like I said, when, uh, usually when people eschew the, the reliability of the Gospels, they think of it as typical myths that other uh, uh, cultures had. But like Josephus points out, the Jews had a premium on uh, record keeping and history because they, they're involved with sacred history, sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, it's, it's important to know that the Gospels, Jesus tapped into a culture that already developed a mechanism to pass on very detailed information from one generation to another accurately. Mm -hmm. And I call that the, the rabbi-disciple circle or mm -hmm. relationship. Right. And, uh, and we know about this in later Jewish writings, but we know that it, it had to have anticipated, you know, centuries earlier, because, um, you know, it didn't just come out thin air. This was something that has been used and developed over time. Mm -hmm. So in my book, what I do is I compare uh, the work of Emil Schuller. 
and he, where he says, you know, what were the components of this transmission system between rabbis and disciples? And then I look at the Gospels and just ask the simple question, do we see those components being used? And uh, it, it comes, you know, once you know the components, when you read the New Testament, you see it all over the place. Like, give it some examples. Well, first thing is uh, a prestigious rabbi. Uh, yes, it's right. just like if you're going to go to a college, you want to go to the best college, the most prestigious, right? And also in our own culture, you know, people uh, follow rock stars. They follow actors or actresses. And when you have a presti prestigious person that you're following, you tend to soak up stuff as a sponge, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's what you seek out. If you're a disciple, you want to find a famous rabbi. And that rabbi would have to have prestige because it's almost like going to university, right? They were the polit religio political movers and shakers of the first century, were the rabbis. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, in addition to that, also, the, um, the rabbi uh, was highly honored. In fact, there are some uh, aspects in, in rabbinic literature where the rabbi is to be given greater honor even than a father. Yeah, that was yes. that was a, a, an important part that both the father and the son honor the teacher. Therefore, the teacher gets more honor than your father. Yeah, which of course, uh, what do you do with the commandment to honor your father and mother? I mean, that is that is the the level of prestige for rabbis. Yeah, and then when you look at the Gospels, what you find is Jesus is constantly called rabbi. He has a group of disciples. Uh, he's highly uh, sought after, and there's even a connection with honoring uh, the teacher more than the right, father. Right. When uh, the man asked to uh, if he could bury his father before he goes and follows Jesus, and Jesus says, "Let the dead bury the dead," you know, come follow me. That strikes us as kind of mean, you know, Jesus, why you're being mean to this individual? But if you look at it in terms of that rabbi-disciple relationship, it's, it fits perfectly within Jewish thought. And he, he insists in the gospel that, you know, neither, neither your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your sister-in-law, none of them, you listen to my word first. You, yeah. you give all that up for me. So he's putting himself ahead, and that's not unusual. Yeah. Yeah, and not only was he called rabbi, but he was also called prophet. And prophets are kind of like the rabbi in the sense that a rabbi transmits information from one rabbi to a future rabbi, mm -hmm. right? A prophet transmits information from God to the people. So in mm -hmm. a sense, he's kind of like a higher than a rabbi. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is recognized as a prophet. But, you know, it even goes one step further. You know, like um, Emerald says, you know, he kicks it up a notch. Yes. Because in the New Testament, Jesus is not Emerald only... Emerald the chef. Yes, yes. Not only is he... Uh, um, a rabbi, he's a prophet, but not only is he a prophet, he's actually the very wisdom of God. In other words, he's the source from which the prophets spoke of, and he's the source from which the rabbi studied. And when St. John says he is the Word, and the Word became flesh, that, I, again, yeah. that's putting him as more than a prophet. Right. You know, uh, by just calling word. And one of the th uh, people that you cite is one of the truly great uh, rabbinic scholars 
of the 20th century, Jacob Neusner. Yes. Uh, Super, uh, Pope Benedict cited him in his work on Jesus of Nazareth as well. Mm -hmm. And his point about comparing Jesus' prestige with that of the other rabbis of that time. Jacob Neusner was a tremendous student of the history of the rabbis and when they taught and what they taught. So what was his comment? Yeah, he said that, um, you know, rabbis always quote or source previous rabbis, but Jesus doesn't fit into that mold. In fact, Jesus has I sayings, you know, I say to you, not rabbi so-and-so taught so-and-so. Uh, and he said that no rabbi ever had an I saying because no one had the prestige to make an I saying. In mm -hmm. other words, in Christianity, there's no parallel. He, he is much higher than you know, even the rabbis that you get in rabbinic literature. Even in Matthew 5, when Jesus says, you've heard it was written, thou shalt not kill. Yeah. He'll not refer to rabbis very often, but to the Ten Commandments. And then say, compared to the Ten Commandments, but I say, yes. don't even get angry. It's not just, you heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even look with lust. So he's taking it to a whole new level yeah. uh, by, you know, going, be, you know, having authority over how to interpret the commandments. Yeah. In fact, uh, Jacob Neusner uh, wrote a book. I think it's a rabbi uh, talks with Jesus. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the title is. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, he says, I would have to part company with him because he's changing the Torah. He's, he's altering the law. Right. And so I'd wish him well, but I couldn't follow, follow him at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, Jesus, uh, you know, he, he is the highest of prestige possible. And you can imagine his disciples would soak everything that he said and did, like, like someone who is a, a big fan of a rock star or a politician or whatever. Right, yeah. right. And if anything, you know, I... <laughs> I like country music and, uh, you know, lamenting the, the recent death of Toby Keith. Mm. Uh, but one of the things that when you think about it, Jesus as a rabbi is the outlaw rabbi yeah. compared to the establishment rabbis. He, you know, back in country music, you had the establishment in Nashville, but then the outlaws would come down to you know, here in Alabama to record, and at Muscle Shoals. And he's one of the outlaw rabbis. He's, you know, way beyond the, the expected norm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, and, and there's several other things Shore points out, but with Jesus, you could check that box a yep. dozen times because he supersedes anything. So in terms of literature, again, you do a great job showing this is not mythology, it's not close. Yeah. And it's more like standard Greek and Roman history writing by eyewitnesses, and it's close to the rabbinic style. Yes. It really brings those two together, uh, I think more so than Josephus did. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And not only that, but if you look at the gospels closely, in my book, what I show is that it shows evidence of 
pneumatic formatting. In other words, we see lots of evidence of memory devices actually within the Yeah, papers. you did a great discussion. Talk, talk about, about what you mean by memory devices. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's some things we learn when we're little kids, like uh, hickory dickory dock, you know, uh, righty tighty, lefty loosey, that, mm -hmm. you know, sayings. And it's funny, we can repeat that word for word with accuracy later on in life. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, that's because it's formatted in such a way to aid memory, right? right. There, there's rhymes, there's rhythm to it, uh, there's word plays perhaps. Um, and when you look at the Gospels, what you find, and again, it's one of those things in the book I wanted them to say, huh, that's weird. Like the Greek Gospels, the earliest Gospels we have, sometimes speak Greek, but kind of with an Aramaic or Hebrew slang. You know, yeah. there's a, like Hebrew flavoring to it. Well, I, I've often described it that in sections of the gospel, someone who's a brilliant writer like St. Luke, all of a sudden writes this horrible Greek. <laughs> uh, and he speaks Greek the way my grandparents from the old country spoke English. Yeah. They come in this country, they don't talk so good like everybody else in this country. Right. You know, and yeah. I used to tease them all the time. <laughs> Terrible grandson. And so, um, <laughs> but you see that, but Aramaic forms was what you point out. Yeah, and, uh, and there's, you know, we can't see all of it through the Greek, but we can see certain things like word plays. Um, one of my favorite instances is in the Benedictus, uh, the, prayer of the prayer of Zechariah, or the song of Zechariah. Yes, in Luke chapter 1. Yes, and when you're reading the English or even the Greek, there's three lines in there that doesn't really stand out. Uh, for example, uh, to show mercy to uh, the fathers, to remember the covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. It, that's generally what it says. Mm -hmm. Nothing really important about that. Nothing stands out. Unless you're reading it with a Hebrew eye, right? Right. Because the word to show mercy in Hebrew is the same root for the word John. And the word for to remember, zakar, is part of Zachariah. And to swear an oath is Shabbat, which is the root of Elishabah, Elizabeth. So you have in the ben Benedictus, you have three lines that have words with the same roots as the three protagonists in the story, namely John, Zechariah, and Elizabeth. And also in the Magnificat, uh, that when it says he will satisfy, that is God will satisfy the hungry and send the rich away empty, the words satisfy also is Elizabeth name because there's a pun, Elishavah, is Elizabeth, that's you say Elizabeth in Aramaic. Mm -hmm. And it means my God will satisfy. But the word Shava also can mean, uh, at like uh, it's not exactly a homonym, but it's another meaning, can mean to swear an oath. So it has both of those meanings show up, but it only works in Aramaic. Yeah, yeah, so what's the odds that you would have a Greek text that would happen to use the same words for the three names in three lines of the song. And so it's hidden under the Greek, but it appears that the Greek is referencing an earlier Hebrew-Aramaic uh, source. 
And throughout Luke 1 and well, from Luke 1, verse 4 to the end of chapter 2 of Luke, there are lots of Semitic forms like, blessed are you among women. They don't have the word most. Doesn't exist mm -hmm. in, in Aramaic. So they, you, they would say, to say you're the most blessed woman, they say you are blessed among. If you are more blessed, you are blessed, blessed from. But in this case, blessed among means you're the most blessed woman. Bad Greek, great Aramaic. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, is just in the text. Yeah. Yeah, so if this was a fabrication or a hoax, why would you bury it under the Greek? Mm -hmm. You know, wouldn't you want your readers to see this and think, oh, this must be authentic. Look at all these memory devices being used. It's like, why hide it, you mm -hmm. know? And so in the book, what I show is that there's these layers of formatting for memorization. They use parallelism, you know, Hebrew poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, they use uh, rhythms, different kinds of rhythms. Right. Uh, and what's important about that is if you, if you can't remember part of a, a verse in the song, like just knowing the context and the rhymes and rhythm, you can usually figure out what the word is, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like the teachings in the Gospels are especially formatted like that, uh, not only with parallelisms and, and rhymes or rhythms, but also um, places in which Jesus gave discourses. Right. Uh, for example, when he calls Peter rock in Matthew 16, he does it in the area of Caesarea Philippi, and the outstanding geographical feature there is a huge outcropping of rock. In, in Kepha, which is translated as Peter, Kepha means a crag of rock. You know, some of these people argue, well, it's a little stone versus a yeah, big stone. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> and Kepha in Hebrew uh, both mean a crag of rock. Because you don't build anything on a small rock or a stone, you build it on a crag. Yeah. Yeah, and in my book, I point out, you know, remember the old TV show WKRP in Cincinnati? Vaguely. Yeah, the opening was they're crossing the bridge, I think, from Kentucky to Cincinnati. Right. And that was the opening credit, and they have the theme song. Well, you know, I have friends in Kentucky, whenever we travel there and I go over that bridge, I, that theme song starts, right? Uh. So it's kind of like what Jesus did. He picked certain feasts that he gave, certain discourses, certain locations. Yes. And the reason is, when those feasts are celebrated or when you're in that location, it's a memory device to evoke, oh yeah, uh, you know, there's the lighting of the lamps in um, tabernacles, mm -hmm. and Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, yep. you know? Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. This, you know, it's these kind of uh, elements that make a good teacher. Yeah and makes a teaching memorable. Right. And, that's, and that's just built into the structure of it. So does that, when you look at that, does that help you think that the gospels are true or does it point to just being made up? Yeah, see, that's it. I, I think for a non-believer, if you look at the gospels and all these formattings that, that are there, it's just way too over-engineered to be a hoax. Mm -hmm. Like, even if you try to fake it, why hide things, you know? 
the easiest explanation is this is ancient biography by contemporaries and that Jesus being an outstanding rabbi is able to teach in such a way that it's formatted to be memorized. One of the things I would recommend as a test case is go to some of the false gospels. These were written uh, 120, 120, sometimes 200 years after Jesus. Read that and see if you can find any evidence of these elements. And it is so obviously not from a Palestinian Jewish context. Yes, yes. These are written in Egypt. They have a Greek worldview to them, not a Jewish one. And they're often rejecting a Jewish view. And when you look at those in contrast to the four true gospels, you say, wow, this is not yeah. uh, the same. This is, you know, cheap junk. Yeah, uh, especially Apollonius of Tyana, yes. who is a first century miracle worker. Uh, if you read uh, his life, uh, there's no comparison. No. Yeah. In fact, it's very easy to fall asleep from all the uh, long-winded discourses that, <laughs> that are in the book, but nothing like the Gospels with the formatting and so on. And, and ironically, people have tried to say, well, the Gospels were based on Apollonius of Tyana. Yeah. And one problem with that being that his life was written about 200 A.D. Right, yes. Kind of late, seeing as how we have copies of the Gospel from much earlier. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing about the Gospels is, well, the big question is, maybe the Gospels, uh, fine, they don't seem to be forgeries, but how do you know what the record is true? How do you know it actually happened? Yes, yes. And that's, so, so this is where the early church becomes very important because it would have been incumbent upon the first readers to verify that these things are so. And in my book, I give you some instances where the gospels actually dare the reader to go verify things. Yes. And we find evidence that they did verify it as well in the gospels. Uh, one of my favorites, the bread of life discourse in John six. Yes. Jesus is saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this serves even his disciples, right? It's one of his most disastrous discourses in terms of followers. But, you know, right after he lays down this really heavy teaching, all of a sudden John jumps into the narrative. And it's kind of like the old time TV where we interrupt this program to give you a very important announcement. These things Jesus said while he was teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Okay, back to your normally scheduled program, right? Yeah, he it's gives like, this little... Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I, one of the things I love doing is going to the synagogue. You can go to the ruins yeah, of the synagogue right. and then pray that gospel exactly, 100% positive, this is where it happened. Yeah. And that is really cool. We have to take a break, I'm afraid. Okay. It's a lot of fun for both of us, <laughs> but um, we have to take a break. If you want to find out more about some of the work that Gary does, uh, you can go to GaryMichuda.com or HandsOnApologetics.com. 
Both of you give more insight into him as well as his book, The Gospel Truth. We'll be back. We want to get some of your questions. You might have questions about, well, how do I know it's true? But did anybody else at the time of Jesus write about him? But is this all made up? If you have those questions, call in. We'll be back in about two minutes. Welcome back. We are visiting with Gary Machuda, who wrote a wonderful book called The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. It's by our guest, Gary Machuda, and you can get it at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number A311, A311. Um, I urge you to get it. It's a fine book to have. Ready for some questions? I'm ready. Let's get you up. We'll start off with Eugene. Eugene, where are you calling from? Oh, hello, Father Mitch. I'm calling from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Wonderful. Great to have somebody from up there uh, in the uh, Dominion. What can uh, we do you. for you? Uh, thank you. Um, well, I, was, I have some uh, relatives that uh, um, don't believe, and I sent an email to one of them. I was... Uh, telling him, I said, well, in the first century, I read some place where the, the gospel was spread a, across the whole of Europe, you know. And uh, at that time, there was absolutely no form of communication of any kind. So this had to be the Holy Spirit. I can't see how it would have traveled like that unless it was the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. All right, so how did... How was it possible for Christianity to spread such over such think, a wide extent in the first hundred yeah, I years? Think, I think it was from person to person and people that they knew, you know, that were baptized by the apostles and that. And uh, but it, it's kind of amazing that it was spread across that much area of the earth uh, in in one hundred years. Without any kind of communication, like today we have instant communication across the world. Yeah, and can't get the news straight. Yeah, even then. So, how would you respond? Thank you, Eugene. How would you respond to that? Yeah, well, that's because God providentially set things up for it. Uh, He came. Jesus came in the fullness of time. He really did, because uh, at that time there was a lingua franca of civilization, which was Greek, that was common everywhere. And you had the Roman roads, too. And uh, what's interesting about Christianity... And a lack of war. Yeah, yeah. And Jesus comes, and Christians utilize that. And also Christians are unusual for another reason, too. They're very literary. Uh, even the New Testament, it's largely composed of occasional letters, right, by Paul and others. So uh, it's really through... Uh, correspondences and letters and so on, using roads, using the common language of Greek, uh, that helped facilitate the explosion. But still, you know, Father, it, 
the Christian message was so countercultural. Uh, if you were a believing, uh, believing Jesus is Messiah and you're Jewish, you'd be expelled from the synagogue. You could be tortured, whatever. Uh, if you're pagan, uh, the Romans looked at uh, Christianity as uh, an affront to the power of the, the state. Yeah, it became illegal about yeah. 65 or 64 uh, AD. Nero made it illegal. Yeah, so um, in my book, Hostile Witness, I, I kind of uh, look a little bit right. at that because uh, despite all the persecution, Christianity just explodes in terms of numbers. And it affects, it affects the microeconomy of some areas, like by Pontus Bithynia. You have Pliny the Younger writing about how uh, the markets that sold sacrificial animals were deserted, but now they're starting to come back now that we were persecuting Christians. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's the, the enemy's answer, right? When you look at Christian sources, what you find out is miracles. Christians were doing miracles. And it was those miracles that made the message spread like wildfire. And, you know, Eugene mentioned how it spread across Europe. Uh, Eugene, you're missing also how within that same period, it spread across Asia and into Africa. I think to remember that one of the key elements, people used to ask me when I brought them to the Holy Land, why exactly is this the promised land? I mean, it's kind of a lot of desert, right. a lot of rocks, a lot of rocks. Uh, and so why is it? Well, it is the place that has the only two roads from the Neolithic times. So you're talking 12,000 years ago that the only two roads that connected Africa, Asia, and Europe. You could get to all three continents on those roads, as well as the coastline and sail to the three continents. And Christianity spread across into Central uh, Asia, down through what's now Iraq, and down to Southern India, right. as well as across Europe and North Africa. So this is truly a great, I think Eugene is very insightful. The Holy Spirit was stirring people to the truth. Also, one of the place things you quote uh, is the commonatory of St. Vincent of Lorraine, chapter two, where it's, he wrote, one of the ancient fathers of the church, moreover, in the Catholic Church itself, all possible care must be taken that we hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, by all. For that is truly, and in the strictest sense, Catholic, which, as the name itself and the reason of the thing declare, comprehends all universally. This rule we shall observe if we follow universality, antiquity, and consent. And in saying that, she's saying the same thing that Irenaeus of Lyon said back in 185. Yeah. So we have a question from our studio. Ma'am, where are you from? Uh, San Diego, California. Nice, very beautiful city. Uh, what can we do for you today? What's your question? 
Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the actual historical manuscript evidence we have, the oldest for the four Gospels. Okay. Yeah, um, well, it, the, first you have to realize that we don't have the original autographs of the Gospels. And so the original documents that were uh, inspired, they're gone. Mm -hmm. But that, although they might at first seem shocking, it's not surprising because writing material just doesn't last. Uh, especially in climates, you know, like Palestine, right? Yeah. So the earliest manuscript material we have actually is stuff that we find in the desert, right? Papyrus uh, buried in sand, and uh, I believe. Well, Father, you can help me with the exact, you know, the, the the names of the documents. But we have fragments from the Gospels as early as the second century. I, I believe there is one fragment of a gospel of Matthew that a papyrologist, papyrologists are people who study the, pap the papyrus itself, know how it's made, its texture, its age, and also the style of writing letters, you know, how, you know penmanship, right. and how that changed over time. And uh, a German uh, papyrologist claims that a fragment of Matthew in the John Ryland's library in England, he claims goes back to the 60s AD. Then there is a copy, uh, a, not a complete copy, but a, a significant section of the Gospel of John from 125. Uh, I held in my own hands uh, a papyrus of Luke and John that was found in Egypt, and it dates to 185 A.D. And it's the oldest copy of Luke we have, and then the second oldest copy of John. And then we have altogether about 5,000 different copies of papyrus, and on vellum, which is animal skin. So that the oldest complete Bibles were from about 325 AD, and that's in the Vatican. I got to see that too once. That was really cool uh, when I did the documentary. If you look up that documentary I did on the Vatican Library, you can see those texts. Uh, and along with, like I say, about 5,000 altogether. Um, so we've got better evidence than we do for Caesar's Gallic Wars. Our oldest copy of Caesar's Gallic Wars is from the 8th century AD. And these fragments and large copies and chunks and whole copies of the New Testament go back with to... Really close. Right, and that's just manuscripts too. We have yeah. uh, early church fathers, Christians that wrote all the way up to uh, first Clemens dated probably around the 95. 80s. Yeah, yeah, 95. Um, where they quote the Gospels. And yep. so, although it doesn't qualify as a manuscript of the, the Gospels, nevertheless, we have the early church fathers quoting it very early on, and those mm -hmm. square with later manuscripts that we discovered. Yeah, St. Clement uh, of Rome, about 95, mm -hmm. uh, St. Irenaeus uh, in 185, St. Ignatius of Antioch, 107, yeah. 
they're citing gospels in their books. You know, and it's not like, uh, yeah, we, we, that, that, what a good idea, let's make up a gospel. No, no, the deciding was there, and we see it. They took it for granted. So this was part of the discourse. Yeah. Yeah. I also, you know, sometimes get a bit frustrated when people throw up their hands. Well, well, I can't trust reading the Bible because there's translations of translations. And, and I want to simply say, take a course in Greek or Hebrew. Learn it. You, you can still do that. Right. And if you don't want to trust a translation, learn how to translate. But don't just throw up your hands. You know, that's cheap. Cheap. It's important to do the work. You have another caller. Uh, Hannah Lore? Yes. Is that how you say your name? Hannah Lore. Hannah Lore. Oh, oh, good to... Hannah Lore. Hannah Lore. Great. Hannah Lore. And I'm uh, an expert in foreign languages. I teach five. I've taught five. Good for you. I love it. Thank and you. What is your and question? One of the languages that I have taught uh, is Russian. And uh, I know your Polish uh, yes. background. And a lot of Polish ties in with the Russian language. Right. Yabila, which is a Nitsarusko-Ayazik, meaning I used to be a teacher of Russian. Nice. But my question was, at, I don't know whether you have it there in front of you, but at our Catholic Church on Good Friday, we go to the front like we do, uh, you know, we don't receive communion. This is to hug or kiss the cross. And mm -hmm. on top of the cross, it always says, Jesus the Nazarene, uh, the ruler of the Judeans. But that's not what is written on it today. And I have brought up that subject. It's Today it says on the cross, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, mm -hmm. which is incorrect. He was from an area in today's Israel uh, called Judea or Judea. Mm-hmm. Jewish, the word Jew or Jewish was not even in our dictionaries until the 18th century. Mm -hmm. Right. And the word Jewish is a shortened form of Judean and, and Judah. But you're, you're, you are correct. It, it says in the, uh, the sign uh, that's on top of the cross, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, Melech Yudin, uh, and this is um, uh, a, a king of the, and the word is, again, from Judah, and Yudin, the, the Judahites, uh, would be the, the a very direct translation. But it's, you know, it's just that um, the word Jew 
and the adjective Jewish is derived from the word Judah. Um, I'm not sure how they shortened it and got rid of the, the D-A-H part, but yeah. they did. So um, still shows up in names like uh, St. Jude and Judas Iscariot. But um, mm. yeah, it, that's just one of those anomalies that goes on when you go from one language to another and it's, it's where that happens. Yeah. You have any comments on that? Um, no, I don't. Yeah. No. An interesting thing though, when you go to Rome and see the sign, it's, it's in the different languages, in uh, Hebrew, uh, Greek, and Latin. And what's interesting about it is all three languages are written from right to left, the way that you write Hebrew. Yeah. And they were, and it turns out, it was a custom in the region to write even Latin and Greek from right to left, even though normally Latin and Greek are written from left to right. So uh, it's, um, uh, it's kind of cool to, to see that, that that was, ended up being very authentic. We have Sal in the great state of New York. Sal, what can we do for you? I'd like to know, Father, if you'd like to comment on the Septuagint. From what I understand, the Septuagint is, is the, uh, the Old Testament that Philip of Macedon had six rabbis from each tribe uh, of, um, of uh, the Jewish tribe translate the Old Testament, and each translation was exactly the same. There was no um, deviation in any of the translations from the 72 rabbis. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah. It's, it's actually by Ptolemy of Egypt, not Philip of Macedon, uh, a, a generation, uh, actually a couple generations after Philip. But uh, the Ptolemy uh, wanted the Jewish people, he wanted every book in the world in the library of Alexandria, Egypt. And he, so he, he financed having these rabbis translate the Septuagint. And uh, in fact, it's um, what they did, it was translated right around 250 BC. So that's 250 years before Christ. They, in that period, they only translated the first five books. Then over the next 200 years, they continued translating more of the rest of the books. And, you know, all the copies we have of the Septuagint uh, were, in, you know, include the seven books that were removed from the King James Bible in 1627 by a print shop. The printers removed those books. King James had them in there. If you look at a 1611 edition, they're still in there. They're in their own section, but they're in the the, the text. But a print shop removed them because they were Puritans and and Calvinists, and they didn't like those seven books at all, so they removed them. But they're 
in all the ancient copies, all the ancient copies we have of the Septuagint. Secondly, it's important to note, I, I, don't, uh, I forget if you had quote, cited this, but the Bible, the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament 360 times. And of those 360 times, 300 are directly from the Septuagint. Yeah. 60 times the Gospels, uh, you know, the Gospel writers translated themselves, especially in John and in Revelation. So it was extraordinarily important. It was the Old Testament that the New Testament writers copied from. That's what they used as their Old Testament. And that's important to remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, and that's another reason why the spread of Christianity, God providentially laid the groundwork because mm -hmm. uh, the Septuagint's a pre-Christian Jewish translation of the scriptures in the lingua franca of Greek. So by the time Christianity comes on the scene uh, throughout the diaspora, the Jews outside of uh, Judea, mm -hmm. they were reading that, the, the, uh, the Greek Old Testament and right. the New Testament plugs right into uh, that schema. Very much the way most Jewish people <clears throat> today in America read the Bible in English. Yeah. It's the same. Right. Same idea. So that was, <clears throat> that's why they read it in Greek. They didn't really know that much Hebrew. Yeah. Here you did a very good job on this book. I really liked it. Uh, I found it, uh, and there are a lot of good insights throughout. I hope you all are interested in taking on these questions when you have them yourself or when you hear them from others. His book is called The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught by Gary Machuda. It's available at EWTNRC, item number A311. Also at Catalog, if you go there, you'll see that I have a brand new book. It's a commentary on the uh, book of Isaiah. So you might want to take a look at that too. We'll talk about that some other show. Gary, thank you for coming all this way to be with us and doing all your work. And I want to give all of you a blessing. May Almighty God bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And you know, we can bring Gary here for these shows and uh, our other guests, as well as the series we do, only because the network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill and we'll be able to pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you.